0: Good morning, folks. I'm uh, Trenton Stokes, I'm one of the pastors here. In case you didn't know, I'm a little bit behind the scenes. Working care ministry, part of the spiritual formation team. uh, And it's a real privilege to serve here. But welcome to Fellowship Greenville. If you're visiting, uh, we have a great welcome center right out the back doors to my left, your right. And they would just love to help anybody that's a first time, second time, maybe you've been here for a month, you still got questions, feel free to, to go and talk to those good people. Or if you've been here for a month, two months, a year, 10 years, 50 years, go to Next Steps. They can give you not just the next step to maybe how you can get plugged in here, but maybe even give you some information about what's coming up in the fall, what you could register for, what to look for. So I just encourage you, Take advantage of those good people. And, uh, you know, Auditorium 2, I don't want to forget you guys. Uh, as Jim says, you look great this morning, even though I can't see you. And online, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your presence with us. So, we're going to talk about the glory of God, but let me just ask a question What is glory? What is glory? You know, Peter Cetera, he sang about it on the soundtrack for the 1986 movie score, Karate Kid 2. Do you remember that great song? The Glory of Love, all about chivalry and well, several other things. But what is the glory of love? At coronations, kings and queens are lauded amidst the pomp and the circumstance. Beauty pageants, talent shows, Cooking competitions and sporting events, these all help to frame opportunities for glory. The, the winners are exalted and esteemed, and the losers, well, they just get to go home and think about what could have been. Glory sometimes is reaching the height of achievement. And so from cooking competitions to spelling bees, we all want glory. It is baked into our culture. But I think it's even deeper than that. I think it's baked into us as image bearers of the great king, God himself. Now we have been in our summer series, as you know, this is your God. And we've been talking about God's attributes. And just by way of reminder, an attribute is not a part of God. It is how God is. And he's not more of one attribute than he is another one. He doesn't possess attributes as qualities, but the attributes of God are how God has chosen actually just to reveal himself, to manifest himself to us. And so far this summer, we've looked at God as creator, uh, his holiness, sovereign, gracious, loving, and faithful. And today we're gonna talk about the attribute of God's glory. And when we talk about God's glory, scripture uses two words. In the Hebrew, it's kavod, and in the Greek, it's doxa. So in the Old Testament, kavod literally meant heaviness or weight. And so when I look at our pastoral staff, like I take a look at Jason, you know, Rob Marks, Charlie, Jim Thompson, Josh Amos, like, When I look at them, you know, what you could say is that um, my kavod is bigger than theirs. Um, uh, Or you could say that I have the greater glory. And that sounds way better to me than just the fact that you need to get in shape, Trenton. So and maybe you've heard something like this. Well, so-and-so is just, there they go throwing their weight around again. It usually means that someone is using their power, their wealth, their reputation, their influence to get done what needs to be done. Or or maybe you've had some of these where you walk out and you say, boy, that was a really heavy conversation. And when we say that, we mean it was significant. It was important. And God is significant. And he's weighty and all that he does. In the New Testament, doxa, can mean praise, honor, or fame. And we actually get our word doxology from that word. And so, as we try to think about and explain God's glory, just a little disclosure. I came across a, a book entitled, The Glory of God, A Biblical Theology, and it was written by a man named Paul Vigier. And I have incorporated parts of what he said and how he presented it into what I'm about ready to share. So with that in mind, I would point out that number one, the glory of God is similar to the power of a king. It marks his superiority, authority, his legitimacy. And because of his glory, God enjoys a certain reputation and unequaled importance, and honor and fame are due him. And as king, he is the possessor of everything good and lovely. You know, in June, the British people, they celebrated like Queen Elizabeth's 70 years on the throne. Like, that's amazing. She has been this weightiness in our world. She has received a lot of attention. But I couldn't... That weekend and even leading up and after it, I couldn't turn the TV on. I couldn't check the internet. There were podcasts about it. It was on the news. It was everywhere. And it only, it only served to increase her renown, her reputation. And you know, David, King David, he had this desire. He said, I want to build God a temple. God said, you can't do it. David said, what can I do? And, and so he began to collect materials to build what would become the house of God, the temple. And, and David declares this in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 29, he says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness of and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth, it's yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor, they come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power, and might, and in your hand, it is to make great and to give strength to all. And so we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. David understood God was king. No one like him, unique in all his ways. And David also wrote in Psalm 24, it's interesting, uh, Ali read that this morning. And just imagine that you are walking up to Jerusalem and all the roads that surround Jerusalem, they they lead up a hill all all around it. And as you're going up, imagine the people that are coming and they're saying, who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord invincible in battle. How would you like that as a battle cry? (laughs) Open up ancient gates, open up ancient doors and let the king of glory enter in. Maybe that's what we need to start saying when we go to our homes. Like open up, and up oh doors for the king of glory, not me, but God, like he's coming. Is he part of that? Who is the king of glory? He's the Lord of heaven's armies. The glory of God is similar to the power of God of a king secondly and there are four things we're going to share about what God's glory is but secondly God's glory is associated with brilliance and light which displays his purity his otherness his independence and God is this fountain of radiance and instead of imagining a fountain of water imagine light just emanating up from the depths and pouring forth And when he shows off his presence, it is too great to be fathomed. The psalmist in Psalm 104 said, Oh Lord, my God, you are very great. How great are you? You're clothed with splendor and majesty. And here's the thing, you cover yourself with light as with a garment. Think about that. When you put a coat on and it wraps you up, keeps you warm, when God puts his garment on, it illuminates universes. He is the king of glory. And then think about when Jesus was born. What happened to that group of shepherds? Do you remember Luke chapter two? And the angel of the Lord appeared to them in the glory, the doxa, the radiance. The radiance of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. Awe and wonder came upon them. And then think about when Jesus was with Peter, James, and John, and they go up on this high mountain. It's just them, just the four of them. And Matthew 17 tells us, Jesus led them up to this high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Can you imagine that? For his face to be concealed with the radiating glory light of God. It sounds a bit like Moses did when he came down off of Mount Sinai with the 10 Commandments. And we're told that his face shone because he had been talking with God just to be in God's presence. And yet here is Jesus in his humanity and God is Allowing a glimpse of the glory that he had before he relinquished that to be seen and experienced by Peter, James, and John. And listen to Revelation 21. John's writing about the new Jerusalem. I just love this passage. It says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You don't need a temple when the object of worship is walking amongst you. (laughs) And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. huh? For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth, they will bring their glory into it. So whatever pomp and circumstance surrounds them, guess what, they're gonna come and they're gonna offer it to the king who's already glorious in splendor. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no more night there. So those gates are gonna be open 24 seven and they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And you know, I think that here is actually the first successful example of clean energy that we have in the world. God's energy plan at work, holy, glorious light to shine for all eternity. No carbon footprint, no tax penalties if you're producing too much, just the glory and the light of God. God's glory is associated with brilliance and light. And number three, God's glory is the beauty of God unveiled. It is the outward display of his internal attributes. And we see this really powerfully in nature. Paul writes in Romans 1.20 that God's invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and his divine nature. Can you see God's eternal power and divine nature? No, they're invisible. They have been clearly perceived though ever since the creation of the world, how in the things that have been made. Paul's point is that the invisible is made visible because of the things in nature. That there is a God who is the supreme, he's eternal, infinite in power, personal, wise, good, independent, worthy of glory. It's clearly evident from the things that are made. I mean, anything that has design and order, it clearly points to designers and creators, right? Clocks have clockmakers. Shoes have shoemakers. Cakes have bakers. Creation clearly points to a creator. In Psalm 19, 1 to 4, David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above his handiwork, day to day pour forth, pours forth speech and night to night it just it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, no language, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. According to Psalm 19 in Romans 1, God has left the indelible mark of his fingerprints all across the vast face of the universe. Glory is the universal language that all people in all places at all times have been able to know that there is a God. And so none of us are without excuse. And I believe it was John Piper who said that the glory of God is the character and beauty of God gone public. I love that, the glory of God is the character and beauty of God gone public. We do see it in nature, but you know what? We also see it in God's work of salvation. In God's great storyline of the Bible, he is a God who wants and desires to have relationship with people. And so he rescues them, he redeems them, and he restores them. And all of this saving work is to the praise of His glory. In Ephesians 1, Paul, he just goes on and on. It's a lot of deep theology, but he says that God chose us in Jesus before the foundations of the world. Before His glory could be seen in nature, He was already planning His glory for men and women for you and for me. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace that he bestowed on us in the beloved. Now. I was seven years old when God adopted me into his family. <laughs> I'm 55 years old today. So it's a lifetime. But he reached down through time and space. And he said to my little wife, he said, this sin, this brokenness, this pain, I forgive it, I mend it, and I heal it. I'm adopting you and giving you a place in my family. (laughs) And he has done that for so many of us here. And it is glorious to see a life that is rescued. It is glorious to see a life that is transformed, that looks more and more like Jesus every day. From grace to grace, from glory to glory to glory to glory. God wants to embed and mark his image, his character, his nature deep within us so that, that when we're in public places, that we would do the same kind of things Jesus would do if he was in our place. And there is a war that rages for the heart of people. <laughs> I mean, it's unseen, but it's real. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, He shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, in the face of Jesus Christ. Whenever someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it is because they have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus with the eyes of their heart for the very first time. The enemy tries to conceal God's glory, but the Father says, let there be light. (laughs) the light of my glory in the face of Jesus. Almost like the sun shining on the moon, the moon reflecting the sun's light at night. But the enemy is trying to create a spiritual eclipse where he wants to come in between the light that is being illuminated. And he wants to obscure the light of the Father so that it can't be reflected in the life of the Son. And why does Satan try to cover up and conceal the face of Jesus because he knows if people see Jesus as he truly is, they will run to him. It is that compelling. It is that life transforming. Is Jesus beautifully glorious to you and me today? God's glory is similar to the power of a king. It's associated with brilliance and light and the beauty of God. God's glory is his beauty unveiled. It's the outward display of his internal attributes. And then number four, God's glory. Wow, it is especially evident in Jesus Christ. Jesus displayed the essence of God uniquely performing the works of God, and also speaking the word of God. John five nineteen through 20, Jesus tells the religious leaders of his day, truly, truly, I'm not lying. I say this to you. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he, the Father, show him so that you may marvel. You know, in some ways, when I think about this, Jesus was the most unoriginal man who ever walked on this planet because he didn't do anything just out of his own initiative. All of his initiative came from who? It came from the Father. And I gotta tell you, that probably takes some of the pressure off. I wished I was more like that. Like Jesus, what are you up to today? What do you want to say to me? What do you want me to say to somebody else? How do you want me to help that person? I'm not trying to figure out my whole existence because he's the one. (laughs) But in the doing and the saying, people saw and heard what it looked like for God to strap flesh on. When they looked at Jesus, they were able to see a God who was accepting, attentive, available, bold, compassionate, content, creative, dependable, determined, diligent, faithful, flexible. God was, and Jesus Christ was forgiving, He was generous, he was gentle, gracious, he was a healer, he was humble, joyful, just, loving, loyal, merciful, patient, persuasive, powerful, secure, tender, wise. And that's just scratching the surface. The writer of Hebrews tells us at the start of the letter in these last days, He, that is God, has spoken to us by his Son, and he spoke through the actions and the behaviors of Christ, through his messages, his words, and his preaching. And it says, this Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, he is the radiance, he is the brightness of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. Yeah, we, 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 we understand science and that science is involved, but ultimately our universe runs under the command and control and sustaining ability of Jesus. There is no king like him, and there is no glory like that glory. To say that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God is to be reminded of what Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. I think Jesus's radiance was the character of God the Father being displayed in Jesus's sinless life and in Jesus's desire to obey all that the Father commanded. That was his whole reason for being on this earth was that he could bring glory to the Father. As John writes in the prologue of his gospel, he writes this about Jesus's glory. He says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God came into the neighborhood with flesh and bone and Jesus showed people what he looked like. When the writer of Hebrews says that the sun was the exact imprint of God's nature, the phrase refers to minted coins, much like our coins. Like when you look at a, at, at a coin that has George Washington's face on it, right? We don't go, huh? I wonder who that is. We're like, no, there's enough similarity there that we, we know from our history classes and other pages that, well, that's George Washington or that's Abraham Lincoln. Like. It is the representation. And what the writer of Hebrews I think is saying here is it is a precise reproduction of the original. It means that Jesus is the visible expression of God's invisible being. And we get a more perfect picture of God when we look at Jesus. We have to see Jesus. If we don't see Jesus, we will still get God's great glory but it won't be personal in ways that will change us and affect us. John 14, eight through nine, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what life will be like after he is gone. And Jesus has been talking about the father and Philip pipes up one of the 12 and he says, Lord, show us the father and that'll be enough. Like, hey, if you can just like materialize the father, like that'll satisfy our curiosity. And Jesus, he says to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I am enough to make the Father knowable, understandable, and relatable. God's glory is especially evident in Jesus Christ. Now, I guess the real question is, after kind of defining it and talking about what it is, is so what? (laughs) What does all that matter? Why does any of it matter? Well, this is not terribly profound. It's actually rather simple and it's quite obvious, but the reality is it should matter because it matters to God, it matters to God. We could never exhaust this topic, and I am doing a poor job trying to cast out a little bit of a vision for this. But we could talk about God's glory for all eternity because God is an infinite God. We will never exhaust his glory or any of the attributes that when he puts them on display make up his glory. How do I know that God and it matters to God. Well, think about this. If God could want anything else for us other than his glory, if God could want anything else for us other than his glory, he would be leading us to become idolaters. And he himself would become an idolater because it would be something greater and more glorious than him. Hmm. And that's, that's why he's called a jealous God. Jealousy in the best possible sense. Exodus thirty-four thirteen says, "'You must worship no other gods, "'for the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, "'is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you.'" Do you know that? That God is jealous over his relationship with you. And when we ignore him, when we go after other things, when we seek our own glory, his jealousy is still there because he knows that the very best thing for you and for me is his glory. In Isaiah 42, eight, God makes it clear he's not interested in competition his glory. He says, I am the Lord. That's my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. Number two, God's glory matters because it can shape and give direction to our lives. God's glory matters because it can shape and give direction to our lives. There are in the attributes of God before sin and brokenness entered into our world, corresponding reflections of that attribute in the man and the woman, those first created, Adam and Eve. I think it's what it meant in part to be created in God's image and to reflect his glory. I mean, think about it because God is truth. What did Adam and Eve do? They told the truth, remember, before sin. Because God is relational. How was Adam and Eve with them? They walked with him in the cool of the garden. They actually lived very transparently in front of one another. So much so that they were naked and they were unashamed. There was nothing to hide. Because God is all-knowing, they were created to learn without limitation, free of the cloudiness of sin. And a lifetime ago when I taught at Southside Christian School, I used to tell my students, sometimes regularly, you have never learned where you have not experienced the effects of sin on your brain. The reason it's so hard for some of you to learn is because of the fall and what took place there. But there is a day coming when we will learn again without labor and tears and sweat, when we will learn perfectly and we will acquire knowledge the way God, I think, originally intended it. And then because God is all powerful, they too were created, not all powerful, but they were created with an ability and aptitude to rule and reign over all that God had created. They were his co-regents in the garden vice regents. And because God is jealous for his glory, he created us with a sense of awe and wonder so that each new day we'd be on the lookout to see what's God going to do today. What might he do next? And how might we partner with him? Well, you know the story. Adam and Eve sinned. They were deceived by the serpent. And they concluded that they knew better than God the path that they should take. God, you're holding out on us. This tree looks fine. And so essentially, they became glory hogs. They put themselves in the place of God to arbitrate what was right and wrong. And in the end, it broke them. They wanted to set the boundaries. They wanted to determine their own path. And this is what we all do when we sin. We become glory hogs ourselves, inserting ourselves as our own authority rather than submitting to God's. And we determine our own path, whether it's telling a white lie, or cheating on your spouse, or your taxes, or maybe at a game of Monopoly. And so they ate the forbidden fruit and sin entered into the world. And although God's image was not destroyed, it was marred. And as sin deepened its effects on the world, mankind became glory hogs. The deeper sin got, the more we wanted the glory. You see, think about this. Where you look for glory will shape the direction of your life. Where you look for glory will shape the direction of your life. It just makes sense that our source of awe will control us, our decisions, and the course that our story takes. Because where our awe is focused, where our awe is focused, is where our hearts will worship. What are you worshiping today? Who are you worshiping today? And his book simply entitled, Awe, like AWE, not like in the South, like, aw, sweetheart, like it'll be okay. No, like, aw. I'd recommend it. It's a great book. And Paul Tripp wrote it, and this is what he said He said, We all attach our identity, our hopes, our dreams, our inner sense of well being, and our meaning and purpose to something. We all give the functional control of our hearts to something or someone. And we all tend to surrender to and serve what we think will give us life. Tripp also reminds us that scripture says there are only two possible objects of our worship. We're either worshiping the creator or we're worshiping something the creator has made and not the creator himself. Sin reduces us all to idolaters in some ways. We all put ourselves, other people or other things in God's rightful place at some point. John Calvin famously said, I don't think he knew it would be famous, but I hear this all the time. So it's famous now. John Calvin famously said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. What are you trusting to give you lasting satisfaction, joy or life? Is it a nice house, material possessions, status? Maybe it's a spouse. If I just had a spouse, that would fulfill all my needs. Or maybe it's children. Children make terrible idols and grandchildren make worse, which I have two beautiful ones. Maybe it's that job you've always dreamed of. Maybe it's just the security of money, especially in our current environment. Anything in this world can become an idol. And all idols do, they'll beat you up, they'll tear you down, they'll make you feel less than, they'll leave you disappointed, and then they'll say, come back for seconds, and they'll start it all over again. So, do you wanna know what my heart leans to apart from Christ? Like, oh no, this is pastor share time. Should this be happening? Like, yeah, at times I have idols when I take my eyes off Christ and I want satisfaction. Comfort, control, credit, commendation. Yes, I want things to go my way. This sounds really bad now that I start to say this out loud. I want things to go my own way. When I want and how I want. I don't always verbalize that, but I feel it inside. I want you to notice me and to think good things about me. And I want to hear those good things. But God says, there's a better way, Trenton. My ways are higher than your ways. And what I know is best for you is what you need most. And I notice you all the time, so I don't know how you could want more credit or commendation. (laughs) I've accepted you. I'm crazy about you, Trenton. Even if nobody else accepts you, I have, I'm the God of the universe. Why does my acceptance not mean more to you than it should, than it does? Well, God, like, but that's the question. And he says, there's nowhere you go that I can't see you, and because of grace, you will always be accepted. But the enemy works to obscure that in my life, and I have glory amnesia I have all dysfunction. And when good things become God things, I begin to look to these things to bring me satisfaction, joy, and life. God, however, invites me and he says, Trenton, taste and see that I am good. And that tasting, that's an experiential word. There's got to be ways that we experience God. And he says, step into the life that I'm calling you to and you will. He must be the source and the ground of my satisfaction because then it allows all these lesser satisfactions and glories to find their proper place in my life. It's not that God doesn't want me to experience comfort, order in my life or receive acknowledgement when I've done something well. He just doesn't want these things to become the governing forces in my life, idols of my heart. God's glory matters because it can shape and give direction to our lives. And number three, God's glory matters because it roots our faith and joy in Jesus. It roots our faith and our joy in Jesus. Peter wrote these words to Christ's followers who were scattered throughout Asia Minor. He said, though you have not seen him, talking about Jesus, you love him. How so, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And I read those words and I'm like, yes, I want to experience Jesus with the great inexpressible joy that Peter writes about here. Even though I can't see Jesus physically, how is that possible? Well, I think the Apostle John and the letter of 1 John gives us an indication of how this can happen. 1 John 1, 1 to 4 says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and we looked upon and our hands have touched concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we saw it and now we're testifying to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. And that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things that our joy might be complete. John Piper in his book, Seeing and Savoring God in all of Scripture, notes that four times John says that what he has seen is now being turned into what he testifies and proclaims. And he goes on and he writes, his intention John's intention is that the faith and life he received by seeing the glory of Christ, that his readers would also be able to receive by seeing what he saw, the glory of God shining through the inspired writing. And there's more. Piper says, the gospels, and we need to think about this, The gospels are better than being there. You are taken into the inner circle of the apostles where you could never have gone. You go with him through Gethsemane, into the trial, into the crucifixion, and the resurrection, and the meetings after the resurrection. You hear whole sermons and long discourses, things that maybe some of the people there only heard bits and parts of. What did Jesus just say? I couldn't hear, it's too much ruckus back here. How did he say that? What does that mean? Can you hit the rewind button on the DVR? None of that was there, but we have the word of God, the gospels, the written record. And so we hear whole sermons, long discourses, inspired context that take us deeper than we ever could have gone as a perplexed peasant in Galilee. You see the whole range of his character. Some people only just saw bits and pieces of it. And you see the full range of his power that nobody on earth saw all of. And as you can see in the gospels, you see his freedom from anxiety when there was no place to lay his head. You see his courage in the face of opposition. You see his unanswerable wisdom he was good at stumping the religious leaders of his day. And sometimes all it took was a question. You see him honoring women, his tenderness with children, his compassion toward lepers, his meekness and suffering, his patience with Peter, his tears over Jerusalem, his blessing on those who cursed him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You see his heart for the nations, his love for the glory of God, the simplicity of his devotion, his power to still storms, to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And though you, though we do not now see him, yet in another sense we do see him far better than thousands who saw him face to face because we see the glory of God shining through this man's face at every turn in the Gospels. You want a sure way not to experience inexpressible joy? Never take a look at Jesus. You want a sure-fire way to grow in your joy and your relationship of Jesus? You look at what he did in the Gospels and you remind yourself he does the same for me. And because you see him with the eyes of your heart, you love him and you trust him and you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. God's glory matters because it roots our faith and our joy in Jesus. And we're just about done. But here's my last question. How glorious is your God? How glorious is your God? I'll tell you, right? (laughs) He's powerful enough to speak the universe into existence and relational enough to enter your personal world and fill it with eternity. He is the uncreated creator who formed you in your mother's womb and who will transform you to look like his son if you will let him. He's the incomprehensible one who has existed for all eternity and remained unchanged in his character. He is dependable. He is the solid rock upon which we can stand. How glorious is your God. He's in a class by himself. He's unique, he's distinct, he's one of a kind. And he left the glory of heaven to come and live as one of us so that we might know him personally and experience his presence intimately. He's all-powerful and He's all-personal. He's powerful enough to order all the things according to His purposes, and He's personal enough to shepherd us through the darkest valleys. He's so gracious and good that no sin, no habit, no addiction, no brokenness need rule over your life or control it. How glorious is your God? He became love personified. So that we might never doubt the extent that He was willing to go to save us, to redeem us, and to restore us. Fellowship Greenville, this, this is your God. He is the God of glory. He's the King of glory. And yet He is the God that lives in the lives of believers and our very center and core of our being. To him be the glory. Let's pray. Father, out of the goodness of your heart, you sent us the Son. And Jesus, out of the greatness of your heart, you condescended to come and live a life that we could never live because you lived it perfectly and you fulfilled all that the Father required. And Holy Spirit, You have come into our hearts and you have allowed us to experience the goodness of the Father and the Son in our experience with the Word and with the fellowship of other believers. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we lift up our hearts to you today. You're great in power. You're awesome in wonder. You're rich in mercy and you delight to call us your children. Father, would you do a work in all of us that, even as Moses asked, would you show me your glory? Father, would you show Fellowship Greenville your glory today, every day, that we might be a church changed in ways that only you can do. God, would you bring revival that unilateral work of the Holy Spirit to convict us and transform us and move us out of our sin and into the light. Jesus, we we just stand in awe. We are amazed. We love you. We need you. We're so glad that you saved us. Amen.